Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Howdy friends, Craig here. In this episode, Stephen Bynum reveals why Resurrectionist players are excited about Yan Lo in Malifaux 3rd Edition. His breakdown on the crew will fortify the spirit of any Rezzer player. Learn the darkest magics that lead Yan Lo and his crew to victory. For those of you that play against Yan Lo, play close attention or Yan Lo will take you down the treacherous path to losing your next matchup. Do you enjoy the content coming from the third floor? We love making it. You can help support our efforts and get a cool shirt or other swag by going to thirdfloorwars.com and clicking on the shop link at the top. Check out all the funny and cool t-shirts and swag we have there for you. Show off your love for the game and support the third floor at the same time. Check out our shop at thirdfloorwars.com. Before we jump in, we have a special offer from our friends at Gadzooks Gaming. Now, Gadzooks has always been one of my favorite online retailers because of their unique selection and great customer service. They're probably best known for selling individual Malifaux models, so you don't have to buy an entire crew box for just that one model you need. Check them out as you start building your crews for 3rd edition. They're offering our U.S. and Canadian listeners a sweet deal. Free shipping on all orders over $100. Use the promo code THIRDFLOOR, one word, T-H-I-R-D. Using that promo code helps us bring you content on this podcast and our YouTube channel. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and use the promo code THIRDFLOOR. All the details are in the show notes. Now on to the episode. Sometime you're creating the conditions for those opportunities. Other times, the opportunities present themselves and you just have to recognize when they're there. There's still something you learn by losing, but you're going to learn a lot more with somebody that'll just play open kimono with you. I mean, he's just an all-around amazing model. Um, he can scheme, he can hunt scheme runners, um, he can assassinate unarmored models fairly well. Um, and then has just an amazing reliquary too. Uh, one of her, her attack actions, such an amazing action. It's another long range ability, much like Yen's attack, that's 12 inch range. And what it does is it lets her move a target, its movement towards a friendly model in its line of sight. Mm-hmm. than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play, or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. 
Craig here on the third floor. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into the resurrectionist master Yan Lo and how the retainer slash ancestor crews work in Malifaux third edition. Now, my guest is Steve Bynum, and this is his third appearance on the show after recording two very popular episodes about Molly and Marcus. Now, if you've missed those two episodes, be sure to check them out. They're in our archives. Now, Steve, of course, is a very accomplished competitive player here in the U.S., and we're really glad to have him back. So, Steve, welcome to the third floor. Now, since you were on last, you switched coast. You moved, I believe it was from Arizona over to uh, the Virginia area. Is that right? Uh, That's correct. So I've got to know, because I know you've been kind of had, even before you made the move, you had a foot in each meta. Um, I'd be curious to know, you know, two metas that are not connected except by you. Can you, what are you seeing different about two, those two metas? So, uh, like you said, third time's a charm. Thanks for having me back on to hang out and talk about Malifaux. You are right. It has been, a, we are still in the thralls of about that 2200 mile move. And just like everything else is different from the environment to the climate to the scenery, the metas are considerably different. The good thing is, because I traveled a a lot for work previously and was over on the East Coast and had a lot of opportunities to play with a bunch of the guys in the Crystal City, Northern Virginia area, already kind of knew what to expect going out there. Um, A whole lot different from Arizona, where it's a much smaller community especially down where we were in southeast Arizona where you only had a handful of players. And really to get much Malifaux engagement, especially events, we had to go up to Phoenix, where it's much more, um, I don't want to use the word non-competitive, but a lot more newer players uh, who didn't have the same level of competition to play against on a routine basis that you get in some of the areas where you've got a lot of the big names and tournament players and big events. Um, so it was a much more laid back environment. We're excited about coming to the East Coast. Um, I'm looking forward to getting an opportunity to expand the experience I've had out there. Typically, I've played with the guys in Crystal City, but as I understand down your direction, there's a ton of guys in the Carolinas, you know, as well as over in Pennsylvania and up in Maryland. There's quite a few competitive players, from what I understand, that I really look forward to getting a chance to meet and play with. Yeah, I don't know what it is about the East Coast, but I think you have a more competitive mindset um, over here, um, which to clarify for everybody listening, it it doesn't make it better. Um, It's just a different way to think of the game. Um, I would be much better off being a casual player because I'm bad at the game. Um, but I enjoy a competitive meta. Um, and here at NC, you know, it's proof that you can have a friendly game that's still a competitive game. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe Steve, you can help me out here. Like, how would you, uh, what's the difference between a casual game and a competitive game in your head? To me, there's, there's not really a, a difference. Any game I go into, I expect that my opponent, you know, is there to have a good time first and foremost? Because yeah. at the end of the day, we're a bunch of grown men and women pushing toy soldiers around the table. But by the same token, I don't expect any lower degree of play from an opponent when I go into a game. If we're just playing on Tuesday night at somebody's house or mm-hmm. at a local store or if I'm playing in an event, you know, e- either way you hope that you're going into a situation where your opponent's making the best decision for the given situation in a given game, you know, and forcing you to make the right choices as well um, as you both, you know, fight to 
to in the end win the game. Um, so I don't really expect either. Um, you know, I do expect to have a good time. Um, yeah. And, and that's the other side of it. Well, I expect you to give me a good game, whether it's casual player in an event. You know, I still expect, you know, good camaraderie, good, you know, yeah. opportunity to hang out, shoot the breeze, have a good time as well. I think sometimes competitive play gets a bad name um, and sometimes very rightfully so, um, especially with other games. Um, so I never got into when I played 40K, I never got near the competitive scene of 40K because I knew what it was. Um, and I didn't like it. Um, and my first, I mean, after playing war games for 15, 20 years, my first tournament was Malifaux. Um, and the, probably the reason I felt comfortable playing is because the quality of the games I, and the community, um, itself. So to kind of build off what you just said, Steve, I think, um, I think I agree with you, which is I have my most fun when both players are, are playing their heart out, but it's, it's how you treat each other during that game. That makes a big difference. Just last night, I was playing with a guy who maybe only has six games under his belt and has never played miniature games before. Um, and he's playing Malifaux, which is a hell of a first game to play. And I mean, every move I made was a competitive move. I was trying, I was testing myself, trying to figure out what was my best options and trying to get better. But I was also, you know, coaching him at the same time. And saying, you know, be careful of this, watch out for that, and stuff like that. So I, I think you can play with a competitive mindset and and not be a dick. Yeah, absolutely, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, going years back when, like you, I played other games, especially say, you know, maybe fifteen years ago in the competitive Warhammer days. You know, there was a group of guys I routinely played with over at the house or at their houses or whatever, where we'd play multiple times a week, and every time we set up, it was still you know, running the same type of list, running the same type of tactics or strategy, um, the exact same way that we would play something in a tournament. Uh, because if you don't, if you don't hold yourself to that kind of standard where everything's done by the book, you know, everything's done properly, you're making the right decisions, you know, you're making the decisions based on what's going to give you the best outcome, um, you're doing all those things, then whatever you do in practice, it becomes habit. You know, so if yep. you don't play like that in recreational play, then that's what leads to people having bad experiences in events where it's a, oh, man, I forgot that or a, hey, can I take that back or I really meant to do X. And, you know, that's not your opponent's fault. You know, if mm-hmm. they showed up and did the right things, you know, and did all the proper plays, then they should have the expectation that you're going to do the same. And if you play your casual play like that, it doesn't take away from your ability to have a good time. We'll still have a great time. The only time I'm not going to have a good time, you know, is if I've got an issue with a person's character. Yeah. You know, if there's a question of ethics and ethical play and behavior, you know, then I'm not going to have a good time and I'm not going to play a casual game with you. But, you know, accepting that, that those types of circumstance then to me, the only difference between a competitive game and a casual game is maybe I haven't met you before or the location we're playing in, but I'm going to treat you the same way um, with respect, I think. You know, I may joke around with people sometime, um, but I'm still going to give you the same type of game. Yeah, no, I, uh, you and I are on, this, uh, on the same uh, 
uh, on the same wavelength there, Steve. <laughs> All right. So actually, the reason we uh, got together today yeah. was to talk about Yan Lo. <laughs> so what we're, what we're going to do is kind of dig into Steve's mind a little bit. And I want to learn um, kind of what his approach to resurrectionist Yan Lo is. We want to get an idea of, you know, um, how he views Yan Lo, how he builds a retainer ancestor crew, um, what are some of his common takes, and then really how does he attack uh, a game? How does he attack the pools? So let's kick it off, Steve. Can you kind of give us an idea of kind of the type of master that Yan Lo is? Um, sure. If you don't mind, though, before we go there, I do want to make one comment. So at the beginning, you said we were here to talk about resurrectionist Yan Lo. Um, the one thing I would like to add up front is I do feel like in this edition, maybe unlike the last edition slightly, even though we're here to talk about resers today, um, that thematically and in terms of effectiveness, Yanlo is a master in this edition that ended up in a really good place and can be played competitively in either faction. Nice. Um, Ten Thunders or Resurrectionists. While I tend to play them in Resurrectionists, I could just as easily play them in Ten Thunders without feeling like I'm losing anything critical that I need for him to operate. Um, in fact, he gains quite a bit when played in 10 Thunders as well as they have some really outstanding versatile models and upgrades that could be used to tailor him real well for a number of matches. Um, just an example of that, like Masked Agent, which can be amazing for shutting down resistance triggers. Yeah. He can be really effective in either um, as a round out or a flex master that can play effectively into almost any strategy and scheme pool. No, that's a good shout out, uh, Steve. Um, it, uh, of course, I, I'm extremely biased as a reser player, um, which is why I've been so excited about tonight's episode. But um, it's good to know um, that that you find him as equally equally effective in both, and maybe um, really see some great opportunities in Ten Thunders. I think that'll help the Ten Thunders players out there that are listening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, that's that's completely new to this edition. Yan Lo was one of my main. Resurrectionist Masters in M2E, and I definitely felt in M2E that you had significant advantage playing him in Resers um, over what you had when you played him in Thunders. But in this edition, not at all. I think he's great in either faction and can do a lot of really good things um, and doesn't lose anything. It's just a matter of you know, which faction do you really need him for yep. based on the other things that you're going to play? And, and I would imagine that's really a function, a lot of ways of the keyword system. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the difference is, and that's kind of cool for these dual masters is that th- there isn't a, he sucks in this faction. He's great in this faction. The, 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 uh, discrepancies between the crews that you bring between the two different factions are minim- minimized now because of, of that keyword system. And he was like that some before because he had so many models that were dual faction already. The main difference for me in second was Rotten Bells were just amazing. Um, when they still had an 18-inch lure yep. and were dirt cheap, and he could only get those in resers, two to three bells was like a staple for any low crew, low crew I played just so they could start reeling models in first turn for you to start the chi generation off the bat. But now, <laughs> with a reduction from 18 inches to 12 inches, with good lures in both factions, right. you know, not so much of an issue. They've completely changed mechanically the way Yan works, um, so you don't have to resort to those same types of tricks anymore as it is. 
Yeah, I don't think that uh, anybody who played Yan Lo in 2E is going to miss the uh, backflips you had to do in 2E to make him effective because they don't exist in, in 3. Um, but he sure still feels like him. Um, so we'll, rolling into that, Steve, c- c- let's give the listeners kind of an idea of, of where you kind of categorize Yan Lo. Where does he fit in as far as a style of master? So uh, the easy answer would just off the top to say he's a utility master. Um, he does provide a lot of tools and support for his crew. There's a variety of things he brings that help out, uh, augment, um, support the rest of this crew. But really, that's kind of a narrow look at him. I tend to play him and I tend to look at him um, as more of an aggro master. He's got some support things he brings, like his heel um, and his ability to to get some recursion with bringing models back, that type of thing. But for me, he's really an aggro master. Um, I play him aggressively. Now, that doesn't mean carelessly, but he's all about damage dealing for me, and he can do it in a very effective way that synergizes well with how the rest of the crew operates and capitalizes off of the opportunities that the other models in the crew bring for him. You know, going back to the second ed discussion, I found Yan to be most effective when you could set up the Chi machine early to let him switch roles from a support role to an aggro master, you know, as quick as possible so that he could tank, kill, or control key positions on the board with two or three other models while eliminating key threats. Now, I don't even see him taking that long. Mm. You know, a lot of people talk about the vulnerability he has in first turn, you know, or second turn. And that, you know, alpha strikes and assassin runs are the ways to go after him. But, you know, even in the early stages of the game, he still brings a lot to the table in terms of offensive capability and output that we can talk about as we go through here. And that's really what I look at him for. Yeah, that's interesting to me, Steve, because, you know, uh, I got to be honest with you, he, he reads as a utility master, doesn't he? Um, when the first time you look at his cards, and I'm really anxious to kind of dig into, um, you know, how you're, how you're seeing him, uh, being even more aggressive. Um, so let's talk about some of the main mechanics. Um, can you give me an idea kind of some things that make Yanlu unique? What are some of his signature abilities? All right. So, um, for starters, when you look at how he's changed, cause we've talked about some about the way he feels or how you look at him, you know, the perception of him as a utility master. And I think a lot of that is couched in the perception that people have, from Yen from second edition. In third, there's some similarities in how he plays, um, with the key difference being you can't trick the process to ramp him up fast by killing your own stuff or reeling things in to generate chi or any of that. And he does start out pretty pretty vulnerable, um, where he has to be protected at least some on the first turn. Um, and he's lost some of his ability to teleport things around and then throw them back into the rest of your crew. But he's still got some similar things. He's got a good ranged attack. Um, he still has a place ability, but it only pushes the other model uh, based on the number of current ascendant upgrades he has on him. Um, and like everything else, it ramps up. You know, further in the game you go, the more effective it is, it pushes models. Um, he's still got a heal. Um, he still gets upgrades, the main difference being that you're getting these automatically each turn. Functionally, he still plays very similarly, where he's relying on his crew to set the conditions for him on turn one, sometimes turn two, and then he can really switch on and start having a more positive impact on the game. Um, usually first turn, he may not be doing a whole lot except for pushing some things around, 
possibly healing something that took some damage, maybe taking a couple of pot shots at an overextended model. And then usually on turn two and beyond, you can start switching gears and go a lot more aggro with him. Um, though from a lot of the discussions I see from other people, a lot of people tend to wait till turn three or beyond once they've had a chance to build him up even more. But I like to get him into the fight as soon as possible in order to get as much of an impact out of him as I can. If you don't mind, Steve, I'd like to dig into the upgrade um, process with him a little bit more because I think that concept of, um, you know, he switches roles turn three kind of comes comes from you know, the way his upgrades work. So, you know, every turn he gets to add, add an upgrade, right? Um, can you kind of give us an idea of what those five upgrades are? Sure. So, um, like you said, Yan comes with five Ascendant upgrades. Um, each turn he can attach one of these at the start of his activation. Um, his upgrades are Ash, Bone, Blood, Flesh, and Spirit. Um, basically, all of them do something when they're attached. Um, they have some sort of immediate um, effect when he attaches to them, um, and then they give him some sort of ability, um, and then some of them give him additional actions. Um, so when you look at these, um, as you roll through Ash, Blood, Bone, Flesh, and Spirit, I'm not going to go through these verbatim. Um, you know, each of these adds something that he needs to either make him more survivable, um, say to give him incorporal or to give him regenerate, or something that makes him more offensive, you know, that lets him treat his ranged attack like a melee attack, um, something that um, lets him um, put out concealment, mm -hmm. something that when he attaches it also, you know, allows one of his other models to um, take an attack action. Um, and each of these does a variety of things. It's really about what's the right order for you to attach these based on the conditions of the game and what you want to get out of him. Um, for example, Blood Ascended, as I said, um, when he attaches this one, the immediate effect is he can take his ranged attack and as it doesn't count towards his action limit for the turn. But then the enduring effect of it is he gets diving charge and he gets gunfighter. So that increases his effectiveness throughout the game. Um, it lets him take his ranged attack as a melee action. It, lets him, it gives him diving charge, making him more more versatile, making him more flexible, allowing him to maneuver across the battlefield more, you know, ignoring train and other models as he moves. You know, Ash Ascendant, it pulses out staggered. It gives him a, an ability that models close to him gain concealment, and it gives him a new action that he can pulse out, um, causing target number duels or damage in, in movement. And really it's about the order of these and how you attach them. Um, typically, the rule is, you know, in turn one, people take a defensive upgrade. Turn two, they may take a defensive upgrade. And then turn three and beyond, you start taking offensive upgrades or you tailor it to the role he's going to play that turn. Um, the first and second turn upgrades can also be used to tailor against or counter the opposing crew um, instead of just a defensive buff for Yan. Yeah, I think the big thing for people to take away is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong um, here, Steve, I'm getting the feeling it was what you're saying is don't lock yourself into saying I'm going to do one, two, three, then four. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let yourself say, you know what, this is the this is going to be my first one because by the time you activate Yan, there may not be unless you've got, you know, a Vic in your face uh, on the third activation. Um you know, you might be able to pre-plan that first one, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is that you need to see the lay of the land um, before you start making those decisions beginning of turn two and turn three and so forth. Does that sound right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, usually, you know, first turn, you know, most players are going to say you're either attaching spirit to give him in corporal um, defensively or ash to give him concealment or flesh to give him regeneration and juggernaut. Uh, most of the time I do that. Most of the time I prefer to take spirit to give him in corporal because um, it gives him defensive support and abilities. You know, it also helps him with movement, allowing him to be more maneuverable, etc. You know, usually on turn two, I'm grabbing one of these as well. You know, maybe I'm giving him regen, maybe I'm giving him ash for, you know, concealment or something else. And then on turn three, I'm, I'm picking up blood so I can start going aggro. But I played a game with him Saturday night um, where just based on the condition of the board, yeah, I took, I still took uh, Spirit first turn because I wanted him to be in corporal because mm-hmm. uh, it let me move through train to get in the position I needed him to get to. But then on turn two, I immediately picked up blood to get the free, free darkest magics out of him and let him immediately just start pounding in damage where I needed him to. And it worked out pretty well. It was a real short game, uh, kind of an interesting game. We talked about it a little bit in that group chat on Facebook. Uh, but yeah, I immediately on turn two went into blood and it actually crossed my mind to go in and on turn one <laughs> because the board state was such yeah. that he could immediately start having an impact. And, you know, that that's one of the things a lot of people don't realize is, okay, I don't need to be defensive with him. I don't need to add all these defensive buffs to him if I've set things up in such a way, you know, and circumstance dictate everything you know, board state, the opponent's crew, et cetera. But if there's no threat to him, if there's nothing they can get to him with, if, you know, the board allows it, if the train allows it, if I've positioned him properly, then, you know, hey, maybe I don't need to waste the first couple turns. It's not really a waste, but maybe I don't need to dedicate the first couple turns to making him more defensive. You know, if the conditions are right, where by going offensive with him instead, I can eliminate threats, and not even have to worry about his survivability. I, I think w- what you're hitting on too there, Steve, is, is part of what makes this such a good game is, you know, in fantasy, you could you could plan a lot ahead. Um, and in Warhammer, you could as well. And there was only so much that the opponent could do to disrupt whatever your plan was. And I think in Malifaux, you need to be a lot more nimble. Um, and that's, I think it's a function of the alternating activations. I think it's a function of how diverse the, uh, potential crews that you're going against are going to be. Um, and the fact that the, you know, that the pools are, you know, diff- so different from game to game. It's, I think it's part of what I love about the game. And I think your advice is good advice, Steve, which is, you know, t- take a deep breath. And you may have been sitting in sitting in the car on the drive home for the last week planning out this game, but uh, you know you get that first punch in the face, and it might change everything. No, absolutely, and and that's really how I, I look at this crew. And I don't want to get ahead. I know we're going to talk about some of this, but you know, at the surface, when you look at it at Yan Lo, when you look at the tools that his keyword brings, you know, his crew really plays a good grind or attrition game. Um, You've got a lot of tough, survivable models that can tie up space, control the board, you know, and create the conditions to allow Yen to to ramp up over time to deliver the kill shot. But it doesn't have to be played that way. I mean, usually I play the crew around a core resilient models, things with armor regen, things that can have that early impact to give Yen the space he needs 
uh, to prepare for or create those opportunities where he can have a real impact on the game. Uh, but the crew doesn't have to play that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to play in a bubble. It doesn't have to play things that rely everything staying close together so that you can do the healing, so that you can swap reliquaries, so you can do those types of things. Um, he's got the reach with some movement tricks that are available to him that the other models bring with the range of his abilities and the other abilities in the crew that he can spread out and play a wide variety of games, strategies, and approaches um, that some people may not expect and it can catch them off guard. Well, and anybody who's listened to your Molly podcast and your Marcus podcast knows that a bubble crew that is immobile is not your style. Um, so I think the fact that you like Yen Lo tells us that he's capable of, of Im- imposing his will by positioning. Um, so I'm excited to dig in that to a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about um, when he goes aggro. Um, so offensively, Yan Lo, what can he do to the opponent? Ooh, uh, any number of things. So um, really, I think the difference when you look at Yan Lo versus you look at some of the other aggressive style masters is the type of approach you take with him. There are some of the masters out there, Lady J um, is a great example, that you can just pitch her in there and go after anything and everything. Um, And if she's got the right flankers, you know, Gardner, if she goes in on that rush, you know, once she comes out the other side, there's not going to be much of their crew left. Uh, With Yan Lo, I I take much more of a surgical approach. Uh, Your target priorities are real important. You know, figuring out which pieces need to be engaged by which pieces of your crew, um, what sections of the board you need to control with either what models or what abilities. And then Yan is really focusing in on where those other key models are doing work, finishing things off. You know, he's the scalpel from 12 inches away um, over that first couple turns while he prepares to go God mode, and then he can just unload in the late stages of the game. Mm -hmm. It... um you know, it, it speaks to it, it speaks to being smart, right, and not being not being stupid because he's not invulnerable. Um, he doesn't quite have the killing power that Lady J does. Um, I mean, Lady J's best defense is that there's not any models left. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it um, it, so you have to. Be, it sounds to me, Steve, if I'm understanding correctly, you just need to be a little bit smarter, but he can be just as dangerous. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it makes me think of a comment a guy made when you release the Marcus pod podcast in the thread on a weird place, there's a guy talking about um, the style of play um, that it seems that I play based on the discussions we've had in some of these podcasts. Um, and he was talking about a, an aggressive style of play and, and how much he'd like to play against me in that type of game because of the way he enjoys playing as well. Um, and the one thing I think people got to realize is don't mistake um, aggression with carelessness. Right. Right. Um, everything's still about risk management and risk mitigation and target priorities and you creating the opportunities where in those brief activations, you know, those specific situations on a critical point of a given turn where you have that capability overmatch, um, and the opportunity to impose your will or take out something that's critical for them to be successful. 
with Jan, he can do it, and he can do it well. The thing to remember is just because this upgrade gives him diving charge or gunfighter, doesn't mean he has to be out there at the front of the, you know, the tip of the spear, you know, leading the squad into yep. combat. He can still do his job pretty well from the back, too, yep. and has got the range to still reach out there and have a significant impact on play. Well, and, you know, after, you know, several conversations we've had offline and on the podcast, you like putting pressure on the opponent, which is which is a good move, um, because if if you're putting more pressure on them than they are putting on you, uh, the chances are in your favor. But there's different types of pressure. There's pressure that's hard and easily released, which means, you know, I'm careless. I'm going to put a I'm going to throw my best stuff at you. But if you can get through this, you're going to win the game. Um, that's not the type of pressure you're talking about. You're talking about a smart pressure that's sustained and hard to get out, out from under. Yeah, very selective. It, it's about limiting the options and opportunities available to them, denying them the opportunity to execute the plan that they want, um, denying them the ability to support the different pieces of their crew, um, for it to work together, for them to focus on the objectives and the game that they want to play, forcing them to play your game, but doing so in a manner that, like you said, you're not just throwing things in there, that it's still a calculated decision of which part, what time, you know, with what models, under what circumstance is the best time and opportunity for me to do this. You know, it starts out from, Deception in deployment, mm-hmm. deception in play, you know, um, isolation, massing the capabilities that you have, dividing theirs and limiting their ability to support the pieces together, um, you know, down to, you know, trying to determine how they're going to execute, you know, a given strategy or scheme so that you can not only disrupt it or interdict but do so in a way that doesn't cost you any additional actions, but is just incidental to the things that you need to do to score and accomplish your own objectives. Yeah. And I think also having the flexibility, Steve, to be able to capitalize on mistakes when they happen. Um, So to have that, again, that nimbleness to be able to say, you know what, I think Craig uh, overextended himself a little bit here or showed his hand a little bit here. And I wasn't anticipating that, but I need to take advantage of it. Um, and uh, that really only comes from playing a lot of games. Don't you think, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you hit on a key point there. Sometime you're creating the conditions for those opportunities. Other times the opportunities present themselves and you just have to recognize when they're there and determine what's the best way you can take advantage of them and capitalize on them. And the sooner you can create the conditions um, to get overmatched, to eliminate those key pieces, to get those windows of opportunity to either score, deny scores, eliminate pieces, et cetera, the more significant impact it's going to have over the whole remainder of the game. It's that pressure thing again. Absolutely. Yep. All right. See that, um, you know, a lot of times I like to cover kind of some of the defensive tech and some of the supportive um, aspects of a master, but um, it, you know, it's really covered with his, with his, you know, his upgrade selection, which I think we dove into uh, pretty well. Is there anything that's a little less obvious um, that, that helps keep Yanlo alive other than, you know, being selective about what you do with them and when you do it and what upgrades you use? 
Um, you know, within the models, and we can talk about this more as we get into this crew, there's a number of models in there uh, that can provide different things for you that you can use to either protect him, make him more survivable, um, allow you to position him more safely first turn, or at least in a more defensible position where he's less of a target first turn. There, there are a few things like that in there for sure. But, you know, I think the biggest thing comes down to board awareness. Yeah. Board awareness and a good understanding of what your opponent's crew can do um, and your threat analysis of how effectively can they engage him or go after him early, if so, with what and how. And then either through deployment, setup, um, target priorities, et cetera, how do you mitigate those threats? without compromising your plan either. Yeah, no, I completely agree, man. I completely agree. All right, so that that kind of gets into Yen Low. What I want to do, Steve, is I want to take a quick break. And when we get back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the crew itself because it sounds like Yen Low, you know, is not only enabling them, but uh, they're helping him as well. Uh, so we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. With 3rd Edition Malifaux released, it's time for you to get a new mat with new deployment zones. We've tried every mat in the business and nobody has better quality and selection than mats by Mars. They're waterproof and they roll and unroll easily and they're even wet erase Marco compatible. They offer over 35 designs and let you add M3E overlays for making deployment and positioning a breeze. Check them out at matsbymars.com. They are offering a sweet discount for our listeners. After you found the perfect mat, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get 10% off your entire order. If you really want to support us in the notes of your order, request that our logo be put in the corner of your mat. It's the only way to make the best mat in the business even cooler. Again, that's Matt by Mars. Use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. All right, so we have a kind of a good idea of what uh, Yanlo's doing, and um, I think one of the big things to emphasize is uh, is having that flexibility in your game plan. And uh, I think really the only way to have that flexibility in the game plan is to uh, make sure that you get your reps in uh, with Yanlo, because being able to make some adjustments on the fly based off of the opponent and the board state, I think is going to be critical uh, with Yanlo on himself. But he's not on the board by himself. Uh, so, Steve, can we talk a little bit about? Uh, uh, the retainer and ancestor crew. I think the first thing to talk about is the fact that he's really got two keywords. Yeah, absolutely. He does. Um, so he does have two keywords, ancestor and retainer. Um, the majority of the models in his keyword carry both. Um, every model just about has the retainer keyword. And then there's a select few that have the ancestor keyword. Yan himself, um, Chiaki has it. Manos has it. Azamu has it. Um, Yen has it. Really, it's it's the models that put out the reliquary upgrades that have the ancestor keyword, and then everything else has the retainer keyword. Um, and then those models that are ancestors have both, which is important to realize because there's a few abilities in the crew. When you look at some of the other models like Chiaki Spirit Flute, for example, that keys off of the retainer word um, mm-hmm. so that it hits everything. But then something like the Soul Porter keys off of the Ancestor keyword 
So it doesn't hit everything. It can only hit those specific things like Manos, Yin, Yan himself, um, Chiaki, and Azamu. Yeah, to your point, I think the majority of the time it really doesn't matter. Um, but it's important to understand uh, that there are two of them and your crew might be made up of one or both on a, on a model by model basis and paying attention and not assuming, I think is important to make sure you're not cheating <laughs> when you're, yeah, absolutely. when you're doing I, I things. I think the most, the, the one you've got to be the most cognizant of is ancestor. Cause like I said, everything carries retainer. So when you look at those abilities, like um, Chiaki spirit flute, the key off retainer, as long as it's keyword to the crew, and not something you brought from outside the keyword or versatile, then you know you're good. It's the other things like the soul porter where it keys off of ancestors mm-hmm. specifically that you got to wait and remember, oh, yeah, there's only a certain number of things in my crew. The majority um, that key off of this, you know, the ones I mentioned plus Toshiro. Um, so it lets you hit those. But the smaller things like your Kamenu and your Gokudo um, don't carry that keyword with them. So let's talk about your core crew, Steve. Um, what are the models that you're seeing in 70, 80% of your crews, uh, regardless of opponent and regardless of the pool? So let me do a little bit of setup here. So similar to how I approach most crews with Yanlo, I'm, I'm really looking for efficiency. I'm trying to find ways for the crew um, to accomplish as much as I can, can on turn one to set me up for the strategy and the schemes in order to let me concentrate primarily on disruption, interdiction, and destruction, turn two and beyond, putting minimal effort into scheming where possible. Um, I definitely like a kill first or at least stall first or set up first, then kill um, and scheme later or scheme first type of crew. Um, with Yan, I do start out with a, a core of models that are pretty standard and then build out from there based on the pool and the opposing crew. Um, you know, in M3, there are several ways you can look at crew building, but one of the first things you've got to do is you look at the core you're going to build around that master is whether the master needs the other models in the keyword, what he brings to him in terms of increased capability or support, or whether he's better with just a few keyword models and then other keywords or versatile models to allow you to accomplish the pool. Um, Yan can actually function pretty well on his own, whether or not he has a whole lot of other keyword models, but some of his abilities, like his heal, mm-hmm. work better on models with reliquary upgrades. Um, playing without his keyword also weakens him and prevents him from being able to take advantage of reliquaries to recycle key models. Um, I've never really considered him as a second master, because um, for the cost you invest in a second master, you need something that's immediately contributing to the game um, and having an impact. And since he kind of ramps up, he's not getting in there as fast as you want a second master. Um, and the synergy really comes from a lot of those other models in his keyword that support each other and give each other abilities. So I start with models within his keyword. Um, Azamu is the primary one. Azamu is in 90%, maybe 100% of the list I play with. Um, Azamu and Manos is really the core. Yeah. Um, I could give you a broader answer, uh, but those are the two that 100% are probably always going to be in there. Well, those two, Steve, are so good. They're so good, and they're designed for 
for very specific purposes. And, you know, I've just started playing around with some Yanlo lists and it's really hard not to include them because, because they're so good. So can we start before we move on beyond these two? Because I think these two are two very key components to a Yanlo crew. Talk to me about Azamu. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, Azamu is just always a take for me. He brings tons of resiliency. He brings great damage output to the crew. You know, and unless your opponent has a good way of dealing with armor, it's very difficult to take down. I mean, just off of his card, you know, with armor two, a good stack of wounds, juggernaut on the back, really survivable. Then you, when you look at some of the other abilities he has as well, like unyielding, which can take away part of the risk you have by fielding such a good beater. Because anytime you put out something that great, um, somebody like Mama Z wants to take advantage of that from the opponent's yep. you know, side of the house and use them against you. And that can't happen with you, with Azamu. With Unyielding, um, he can always say no. If mm-hmm. someone wants to obey him to take something out of his activation, he's got Flurry, he's Men 3 damage. He's just a great damage dealer. One of the few models that's still running around with two-inch reach. I mean, there's a number of them out there, but it's not near as common as it was before. So just with his base size, 50 millimeter base, with two inches of reach, with flurry, with men three damage, with armor two and juggernaut, um, he is a juggernaut. He is extremely difficult to take down. He can do a lot of damage for you, and he can also control space and hold territory for you like no other. And then once you get a reliquary on him as well, uh, then he's almost impossible to take down. Plus, he brings Ruthless to the crew to help you get around some of those annoying defensive abilities like manipulative and things like that. Uh, so just a just an all-around solid model that does really one role for you, serves as a primary beater, but he does it extremely well. Yeah, I think, Steve, and I think that kind of the big thing um, that, that uh, I'm learning about Azamu is his first role, as you speak to, is obvious. He, he just beats the hell out of things and he and he's hard to take off but you hinted at the second role that he really plays which is he can dominate a large piece of the board because he can't get moved off he's such a threat um and i think understanding that is believe it or not can be harder for the player than for who you're playing against yeah yeah it can and you know sometimes that's kind of a double-edged sword when your master's a, a ranged aggro master, because if you get too many of these large pieces out there um, that are engaging the enemy that you want to engage their key models or tie down places, then it's difficult for your master to actually get in and have the impact you want as well. Um, but with Azamu um, or any of your other large beaters, you have no drawback at all to getting them engaged. Yep. Because everything Yan does still works even if his models are engaged or the targets that he wants to go after engaged because his primary form of attack, Darkest Magics, ignores friendly fire. (laughs) So Azamu can be in there controlling space, guarding turf markers, holding the center of the board, you know, either controlling or denying different things, uh, going after key models that you need to eliminate. He's deceptively maneuverable when you factor in some of his own abilities that people tend to overlook, um, like his tactical action, heroic intervention, 
or some of the other abilities within the crew. And then once he's in there, Yan can still just blast into the combat with no penalty at all to, to do the cleanup work and then allow Azamo to go after other targets. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we also need to talk about a little bit more detail, Steve, is um, the you know that, that reliquary um, upgrade uh, thing. So, uh, all of, a lot of these models, and Azam is one of them, has a demise ability. Um, so, can we walk through how that demise ability works, and specifically what uh, happens with Az- when Azam dies? Sure. So, um, absolutely. So, all the models except for Yanlo with the ancestor keyword. So Toshiro, Azamu, Manos, um, Chiaki, and Yin um, have a demise ability, demise reliquary. And what happens is each of them have a upgrade that is unique to them, um, a reliquary upgrade, that once that model dies, another friendly model within eight inches of them can attach that reliquary upgrade. And then it provides them some sort of benefits that are pseudo-related to what the uh, original model did or what style of model he was. So, for example, with Azamu, since we're already talking about him, you know, Azamu is a armored-up ruthless tank. So if he dies, he gives out his reliquary upgrade to another model within eight. They attach the reliquary upgrade. Um, obviously, you can only have one of these. Um, it's special reliquary limitation because um, it only gets handed out when Azamu dies or one other way. Um, and what this upgrade does is it gives a model armor plus one and it gives him ruthless, which are some of the characteristics that Azamu had. Yep. He's armored two. His upgrade gives out armored one. He's ruthless. He gives out ruthless so the gaming model can ignore terrifying and manipulative. If you look at, um, just as a, another example, if you look at Manos, so... Um, out of the Rezzer keyword, um, Manos has uh, regeneration. Uh, you go over to Manos' reliquary upgrade, um, and when you pull up his reliquary upgrade, he dies just like Azamu. He can hand out his reliquary to somebody within eight. They gain it. They gain uh, regeneration plus two, um, just like him. So at the start of their activation, they regenerate, and then they also gain de- demise eternal. Uh, the standard once per turn when they die, they can discard a card in health for amazing upgrade. Granted, I don't really like Manos to die in order for me to have to hand this out. Not the optimal way that I want to go to get that reliquary on the board, but it's a great reliquary. Uh, there's a number of the models, you know, both in keyword and out of keyword that I run in a Zamu crew or a Zamu in a Yanlo crew, um, as it is that are already just amazing, incredible models. And then once you get something like the Reliquary Manos on top of them, it just puts them through the roof in terms of the capability they bring and the effectiveness that they have as well. What I love about where the, where where this all ended up through all of the betas is that you've got a mechanic that's very unique. Um, you don't see anything like this in any other crew. It um, It's mechanically and tactically and strategically interesting. Because, you know, you play the model different, knowing that not only can I hand this upgrade out and make another model better, but I can also, you know, one of the other things is you can, you know, replace the model with that upgrade with the original model. Um, And all of that's really cool from a strictly strategic standpoint. But 
the fluff boy in me also just loves the idea, which is Azamu dies and his spirit inherits, you know, another model that's close to him and they, they gain some of his power. Um, so just from a fluff perspective, I think it's cool as well. Yeah, it, it definitely echoes that kind of thought of the spirits watching over you, bringing you something, etc. that you find in a lot of those Eastern traditions for yep. sure. I mean, it, it's really cool, um, really fluffy kind of interesting and then like you said in terms of gameplay you're still getting some of the benefits or ability of this model once the model's gone and then of course Yan Lo has the ability that he can actually uh, bring a model back based on a reliquary that they've handed out earlier so you're getting the effect of that model again and, and the first time I looked at the reliquary upgrades um, I gotta be honest with you Steve I was so focused on well I can bring Azamu back or I can bring Manos back um, it wasn't until I spent a little bit more time, you know, talking to other Rezzer players and stuff where they're saying, man, a lot of times, you know, yeah, it's great to be able to bring these models back, but it's nice to have a turn or two with Azamu having Manos's reliquary on him. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the truth for sure. I mean, you know, obviously you're never wanting key pieces to die, but it's part of the game, you know, um, and life in Malifaux are about trade-offs, yep. you know. And sometimes you make those trade-offs to get the end result you're looking for. Um, getting the getting the reliquary is kind of the salve that you know makes up for that. And like you said, sometimes it can be even better. Um, the awesome thing, and we'll get into that later, is you don't always have to have the model die mm-hmm. in order for you to give out that reliquary. Um, but for sure, nothing will make a grown man cry like seeing Archie with Demise Eternal and Regen Two, <laughs> you know, or some of the other nasty combinations that you can you can see on the board once you see some of those reliquary upgrades getting tossed around. For yeah. sure, yeah, no question. So, um, so we we've got uh, as I'm pretty much covered. Let's talk about Mano. So the the other one that you think is just uh, almost as close to a hundred percent. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Manos is there. Like, like I said, I, I don't know if I've ever played Yen in this edition without Manos. I mean, I'm enough of a Manos fan that, I mean, I filled Manos out a keyword. When I look at Rezzers, Manos is one of the models, uh, one of the several models that I definitely think is worth filling out a keyword. He's not a 100% auto-take, auto-include in every crew and every keyword, uh, but there are definitely a number of strategies um, or a number of schemes, mainly strategies, that will make me reach for Manos, even if I'm not playing uh, Yanlo in a particular game. But Manos himself, you know, he does a lot of things for you. Um, he's decent in combat. Um, he's decent at scheme running. He's a real utility piece. There are not it, – it'd be easier for me to say what can Manos not do exactly, um, than go through all the things he can because he brings a lot. I mean, he's real resilient. Um, he's got decent stats. He's got regeneration. Um, he's got a decent attack. He can mitigate um, opposing attacks as well and reduce the effectiveness of your opponent's models because he has extended reach. Um, with siphon power, um, he can always get the triggers he needs for any given situation by either pinging himself or pinging one of your other models for damage. You know, he hands out an amazing reliquary. Um, he's got leap. He's got the same range, well, very similar ranged attack um, to what Yans does. So he can do the same type of ranged support while he's doing other roles as well. 
so that he doesn't always have to be there engaged in melee to have an impact on the game. You can run other things with him and have him focus on other um, objectives, and he can still contribute. Um, then he's still got a decent melee attack as well. I mean, he's just an all-around amazing model. Um, he can scheme. He can hunt scheme runners. Um, he can assassinate unarmored models fairly well. Um, and then has just an amazing reliquary too. Yeah, his ability to shift gears, um, I, I think, is is impressive because sometimes you have those models which I consider confused models, right? So they're a little bit of everything and you can't quite figure out what role they fill. Manos is not that because he, he's a jack of all trades and he's really good at every one of those trades. Yeah, absolutely. He's a utility piece um, that, like you said, can do every one of those roles extremely well. And then he brings some tools to the crew that you just don't have. And he brings some, some tools to the faction that you don't have a whole lot of that you may not need all the time, like Lantern of Souls. Um, but when you need them, mm-hmm. those abilities can have just a significant impact on the game. Yeah. And the more games you get of M3E under your belt and the more uh, different crews and keywords and masters you see, you're going to find those masters where the demise ability is a big deal. Um, and you're going to learn to tech against it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that's one of the things. I mean, there's a number of things I've used Manos for um, in other crews outside of Yenlo. I think I talked about Manos some as one of my out-of-keyword choices when we talked about Bali a while mm-hmm. back. Um, and he's just he's amazing for strategies like Plant Explosive or Turf War or things like that. Um, and those are some of the times where I was reaching for Manos before when we talked about Mali. But, you know, also I, I, I ran Manos in a Karak crew not too long ago. Wow. Um, when I was playing as a McCabe player. Yeah. Um, he had McCabe. He had a couple other things. I, you know, I don't remember the exact list verbatim. But it was a McCabe crew with a few other assorted uh, models in there. And between Datsuba and Manos, um, there just wasn't a whole lot of safe areas for McCabe to be at um, without a risk of the horse falling on him when he went down. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So who do you reach for next after you've got uh, 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 Manos and you've got uh, Azamu on your list? Um, so, like you said, um, you know, start out with a core of Manos, Azamu, Yan, and the Soul Porter, um, his totem, of course. Um, and then most commonly after that, I find myself reaching for Chiaki. This was a pretty recent change for me. Um, and I say recent. Recent's probably not the most accurate. Um, recent as of the last couple updates in the open beta. Um, prior to that, I would have told you Azamu and Manos, and that was the core. Um, and then I'd probably reach for Sun Quang. But about either one or two updates before the end of the open beta, um, they made a slight change um, on our girl Chiaki that took her from being an option pick to me to virtually a almost core mandatory pick for me. I, I can't say she's 100% um, a core choice for me, because there's probably some games where I don't think I have to have her in the core crew. You know, maybe if I'm playing against a collect crew or something where I'm not anticipating a whole lot of damage coming at me and I'm expecting them to play much more of a scheme-based game, um, then I may not reach for Chiaki. 
but in probably really close to 90% of the games, then Chiaki is the, the, the next piece um, rounding out those five models that form my core crew, which gives me a pretty solid core um, of models, five models at 26 stones mm-hmm. and about 24 stones remaining. So you still got plenty of room. Um, where you can tailor to the pool, you can tailor to the opponent, you can have a healthy cash, you can do some of those other things as well. Um, but yeah, I, I can fairly safely say that Chiaki probably rounds out my core crew of five models. So what did they change? What made her a, a, an almost always take? Um, really, it was the trigger on Spirit Flute. Um, and the mathematicians out there are probably throwing things um, you know, at their computers right now or throwing down their headphones because being an enforcer that can't stone for suits, it's probably silly for me to say that a suited trigger um, is the reason that she became an almost mandatory take for me, but that's it. So Chiaki has a, a bonus action, um, a tactical action, quick action, spirit flute, which already by itself is a great action. It lets all friendly retainers within four inches of her, it's a pulse, move up to three inches. Um, as we said earlier, every keyword model um, has the retainer keyword in the crew. They may not have ancestor, but they're all retainers. So it's already a great bonus action because it pulses out a three-inch move for pretty much any keyword model in your crew. But what this trigger added, um, Spirit Split the Soul on a mask, was that she could pick a model within range, so the four-inch range of the pulse, um, and then that model could attach a reliquary upgrade based on another model that was within range. That's such so for a big example, deal. If I'm setting in deployment and I've got, I don't know, we're playing plant explosives, even though plant explosives is not the, the <laughs> one of the crews that I would typically run Yan Lo in, he can run it surprisingly. Um, but let's say, hypothetically speaking, you're playing Plant Explosives or Turf War, and so you've got Archie setting there, since we mentioned Archie earlier, because Archie's just a great all-around model for his cost, and he's got a suited leap built in, so he's pretty maneuverable, so he can get out there to tag a turf marker, he can get out there to plant a bomb, or he can get out there to assassinate a key model of the opponents. So you've got Archie setting there within four inches of Chiaki, and you've got Manos or a Zamu set within four inches of Chiaki, then if she can hit the suit, and it only requires a four above of mask um, for her to hit the target number and the suit, then she can take the reliquary upgrade based on Manos or based on a Zamu or what that other model is and slap it right on Archie first turn. So you've got that reliquary in play in the case of Manos, giving Archie regeneration to and demise eternal. Um, without you having to lose Manos in order right. to get that reliquary. And when you look at that specific example, you want to talk about abusive, right? So you're giving Archie Regen 2, and you're giving him Demise Eternal, and you have to discard a card for Demise Eternal, right. which also triggers his fading. Yep. So then you got you know Archie going from fixing to die based on the resources they put in him, to back up to six health. Yep. Looking at them again, <laughs> you know. Well, and I think, you know, to kind of tie into um, what you're saying about, you know, a, a non-built-in suit, it's key for everybody to understand this is not an opposed duel. 
and the target no. number is low. So you, your chances of having a card in your hand that will allow this to go off are very good. And I get the impression, Steve, that you'd be willing to, to spend a high card to make this happen. Oh, oh absolutely. There's games I've played. Um, the game I played the other night, um, Saturday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, um, whatever it was. We were talking about it on chat earlier. But the game I played the other night uh, where I was running Yanlo, I think first turn, the only mask I had in my hand was an 11 of, uh, was an 11 of mask. No hesitation. You know, I only needed a, you only need a four for this to go off, but no hesitation. That was the only mask in my hand, but that ensured that I was able to hand out a reliquary upgrade first turn to another key model in my crew. And so the 11 went to it. There are some turns where it becomes a lot more situational. Yep. You know, turn two, turn three, you know, I've got to evaluate the situation. I've got to look at the rest of my hand. I've got to say, how critical is this card? Is it something I, I need to, you know, eliminate a key model? Is it something that's going to enable me to do something that's either going to disrupt the opponent's plan, score me points, deny points, et cetera? Uh, but generally... First turn, it doesn't matter what the mask is. 13 a mask, maybe Red Joker. And Red Joker will have to, yeah, I'd probably still go, depending on what the trade-off is and what the matchup is. Um, It'd be hard not to, Steve. I mean, the the return on it you can get is just incredible. I mean, you're talking about just in that example, you know, given something like Archie, you know, Regen 2 and that demise ability that can also trigger his fading. It's just insane. Uh, you look at some of the more, that's already pretty dirty, but you look at some of the other combinations, you know, and think about what you could do with somebody like a second master. Mm-hmm. And you're handing out a reliquary upgrade so that now you've got somebody like Seamus with Regen 2 and demise return, you know, or somebody <laughs> like McMorning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it is so worth it in those circumstances that I don't even hesitate, no matter what the card is. If it's the only mask in my hand, you know, obviously I'm looking for that four of mask or that five of mask or whatever. But, you know, hey, at the end of the day, you know, it's one card, one turn to give me an ability that I'm going to get benefit out of throughout the game. So it's well worth it to me. And I think that's the next big piece to, 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 to highlight there, which is this is happening turn one. Absolutely. Which means, yeah, you may have spent a severe to make it happen, but you potentially have five turns of value you're going to get out of it. So it seems like a no-brainer to me, man. Yeah, absolutely. So that's really the difference, um, and that's why she went from a maybe to me. Um, previously, I liked Sun, and I, I still like Sun, but previously Sun kind of edged her out because of some of the things that he brings to the game and some of the tricks you can do with some of his abilities. Um, but once they added the split the soul suit to her, when you look at everything else she does too, uh, and how much value you can get out of her other abilities, you know, on top of having this bonus action that's giving you movement plus handing out reliquaries, then that pretty much shifted her uh, into the core crew. Like I said, I, when you asked me the question, my answer was Azamu and Manos. Mm-hmm. But realistically, there probably hasn't been a game I've played with Yanlo since they made that change where Chiaki wasn't in the crew. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Is there any ones that um, are you, you would consider kind of the 80% of my time I take them? Um, or are we starting to get into really your flex numbers now? Like I said, after those five, pretty much everything's flex for me. 
Um, from there, there's really two main routes I'd go. Now, a lot of this is going to be based on the, the pool, the strats and schemes, you know, the matchup, what the opposing crew is, what I'm expecting, what mask or what faction, what I think that tells me about what I'm apt to see based on the faction, the master, the strat pool. Um, you know, if I was in their shoes, the things that I would be playing based on those factors. And then that really kind of determines the direction I go. So there's two main routes I do go from there, and there's some things that are common to both. Um, route one is if I don't run a second master. Um, and I know some of your other guests have talked about second masters as well. I know we talked about it when we talked about Marcus, in that with Marcus, I usually don't run any other masters with him. I just run him in keyword, whereas with Molly, I'm a lot more apt to mitigate some of her weaknesses with other masters. With, with Yan, I can go either direction. Um, I can run a second master with him. I've had a number of games where I've run a second master with Yan, and it's performed really well. Um, I've also played probably about the same number of games where I don't take a second master, and then it's just given me the additional points to, to add more options. Um, no matter which way I go, Typically, there's a Gokudo in the list. Um, if I'm running a second master with him, then I've got the core, I've got a Gokudo, I've got a second master, and then I've got stones left for cash or an upgrade, mainly a cash, and that's about it. Because mm-hmm. the Gokudo is five. If you run a second master, you're looking at 16, which really leaves me a smaller pool than I like. Um, but in some circumstances, it'll still work out well. You just have to take it in consideration with how you play and what you're going to do. If I'm not running the second master, then I'm looking probably at a Gokudo, and I'm adding a Kamenu at that point, and I'm adding Sun Quang as well. I mentioned Sun Quang earlier. I love Sun. Sun brings a lot of tools. It brings a lot of options. They're just much like um, like the nurse. There's just a lot of things that Sun brings to a crew um, and allows you to make up for some other things, do some things more efficiently, um, enhance and augment the other models as well. And it's just an all-around great model. So depending on which direction I go, that's probably what you're looking at. But at the end of the day, uh, it's kind of hard to do this in isolation. And the end result of those 24 stones is really going to be based on you know, the scheme pool, the strategy, and then the opposing crew. Yeah, and I think, you know, the roles that the Gokudo uh, fulfill and the dogs fulfill are, are pretty obvious, but can, can we very quickly talk about um, what you think Sun brings to the table? Um, so Sun brings more healing. You already get some healing in there with uh, Yan Lo as it is because Yan's got a decent heal, even though it's a bonus action. He's got a decent heal. It gets better, you know, if a model's got uh, reliquary upgrades on it. Um, so Sun's bringing you some additional healing, which tanks your stuff up, stuff up even more because you've already got a pretty resilient crew. When you look at models like Azamu that are armored and have Juggernaut or models like Manos that have regen, uh, when you look at Shiaki's ability to hand out those upgrades or those reliquaries, which give regen, which give Juggernaut, which give those things. So adding Sun in, you're getting some additional healing. He's got an aura, so models that start near him. Um, can heal. He's got a tactical action that gives you a good long-range heal, um, as well as a trigger on it that can let other things heal as well. So he's really ramping up the survivability of your crew, the resiliency of your crew, 
Um, he's got Don't Mind Me, so he's great for scheming as well. Um, he's got uh, two other key abilities that I really like. Uh, bedside Manner, which is something he shares in common with the nurse that I mentioned a few minutes ago. I love models with Bedside Manner. Uh, bedside Manner is almost like the poor man's butterfly jump. It is. It just <laughs> it does so many good things for you that can just disrupt an opponent's plan and makes them think about um, what you can do with it and alters how they play as a result. And then what's kind of cool is uh, pairing up real well with Bedside Manor is that he has an ability King of Medicine. So if a friendly model places, uh, which is what happens when you use Bedside Manor, yep. then it also heals. Uh, so when you look at the resiliency the crew already has, the aura that heals things that start nearing Bedside Manor, which can you know, interrupt an opponent's attack run and pull a model out of the way and heal it. Mm -hmm. And then he's also bringing his own heal too. He just brings a whole lot in those areas. Plus there's another way with his attack action that you can hand out distracted or focused. So he brings some more utility to you as well, where you can either handicap their models, uh, giving you more and even greater advantage with your own models and some of those opposed duels. Um, or you can, you know, hand out focus to your own models, you know, to let you ramp up damage even more to, you know, to mitigate the impacts of armor and things like that a little more effectively. Yeah, he's a strong support piece, really strong. Um, and what I like is he's not a, uh, a single lane uh, support piece. Um, and you've talked about it, how he can, he can support the rest of the crew in multiple ways and multiple circumstances, but he's not cheap, uh, which I think prevents him from being an always take. Um, let's talk outside of ancestors, um, and retainers. Um, talk to me about a couple versatile models or even out of keyword models that, um, you definitely look at, not always, but definitely consider when it comes to a, uh, Yanlo crew. So uh, with versatile models or without a keyword, really at that point, it's going to be dictated a lot for me by the pool and the matchup. Um, this is one of the areas also that is going to differ a lot based on whether or not you're playing Yen and Rezzers or whether you're playing him in Thunders. Um, even though we're really focused on Rezzers in this, I'll hit a little bit of both. Um, so... To me, it's really about tailoring the crew for an opponent or, or the pool. Um, I'll start with Thunders. In Thunders, I tend to use versatile models, either for additional beaters in the crew or to give me um, anti-armor tech if I'm going up against a crew where I need it. Um, I rarely fit in more than one out of keyword beater into a crew. Um, and with Thunders, there's some really great, great options there for either range, melee models, additional maneuverability. Some of the standouts for me on the Thunder side of the house, uh, the emissary, Yasunori, Fuhatsu, Samurai. I mean, Fuhatsu is just insanely um, good for his points. Um, and there's really a lot of good choices, both versatile and out of keyword, um, for Hucksters, or excuse me, for Thunders. For additional scheme runners, if you don't need beaters, um, then I'd consider doubling up on Gokudo, which are in keyword. But of course, depending on what the pool are, um, Hucksters or Katashiro, or some of the other choices can be great, great plays as well. Um, if you're playing against something with a lot of terrifying in their crew, then there are a lot of good ruthless choices out there that also pair up with good damage um, in some of the other keywords instead of versatile, um, things like Mr. Graves, things like Bill Algren, of course, Fuhatsu that I already mentioned. 
there are plenty of other choices we could uh, we could talk about as well. Fuhatsu really deserves another mention, even though I already did. I mean, he is just so good for what he brings to a Thunder's crew for his points. I mean, unless your opponent has a quick way to deal with him uh, or willpower-based attacks, he is just crazy good. I mean, for nine stones, you get nine wounds, ruthless, armored. He's a henchman that can't be moved. You know, a six, uh, stat six shoot attack with plus flips at 12 inch range with rapid so fire, good. an irresistible three inch push pulse, um, or juggernaut so that you can do things like claim jump. I mean, he is just so much value. And Rezzers, um, I think similarly, a lot of it's dictated by what gaps am I trying to fill? Um, if I need more scheming, then, you know, choices like Necropunks are an option. Um, albeit a little more expensive. If you need more uh, mid-range dual-purpose models or another large beater, then there are so many good options out there. Um, some of them we already talked about, um, like Archie, for example, even though he's not versatile. Um, the Emissary and the Grave Golem are both good choices. Uh, the Grave Golem is something that just even further ramps up the unkillable nature of your crew. The Rider is always a player for another great attack, though, um, and a, a way to even further enhance your maneuverability. Though I, I, you're really starting to get into the almost too expensive territory for yeah. me at that point. Um, out of keyword, Archie's always a competitive choice. I've brought Archie in a number of times because he's bringing you additional maneuverability. He's bringing you ruthless. He's bringing you a good melee attack. Um, flurry. And like I said, once you start stacking Reliquary upgrades on him, uh, then it really makes for a good time. Yeah, and the other thing that's key about Archie too, depending on your matchup, and again, remember, you're always going to know your master before you build your crew, is um, that Shargoff. Um, that be, or not Shargoff, Numskull. That, you know, if, if you know that person declares Karis or that person declares McMorning or something like that, your your ability to say, you know what, I need a beater that can get in there and not worry about this stuff, Archie's just huge. Yeah, absolutely. Or any of the any of the masters that spam out slow or distracted or any of those other debilitating conditions for you to have something that's that effective and just neutralizes part of their game. I yep. mean, he can be great. I mean, similarly, there's some other, you know, out of keyword choices, things like nurses um, that I like if I think I need more condition removal. You know, it's there's more tricks you can do with bedside manner, though generally, um, I you know, I don't look at a nurse as often as I might because you're already getting sun for the mm-hmm. same cost as you would a nurse out of keyword. And, and sun just brings even more um, to you at that point than what a nurse can. You know, if you think you're going up to something against something that is really condition heavy, you know, then maybe I'm going to bring a nurse in anyway. Um, but most of the time, you know, to be honest with you, I'm pretty happy with the choices that are in keyword. I mean, if I need additional schemers, then I can run a second Gokudo. Yeah. You know, um, if I need, um, depend on the strategy, you know, maybe I need a fast, long-range scheme runner, then I hate to say it. Um, but, you know, maybe you're bringing in Yin. I say I hate to say it because I don't like spending that amount of points. But, you know, for whatever reason, somebody stepped on my molly, and so I ended up running Yin low in a game of plant explosives instead you know, then Yen's still bringing you some some maneuverability, you know, and the ability to double walk 12 inches, do his bonus action, to, you know, take a wound, force himself to interact and plant a bomb, you know, and he's moving 12 inches and dropping an explosive for you. 
So, I mean, there's really a lot of good choices just within the keyword um, that you can look at and really tailor how the crew is going to perform and the pieces that you're going to bring accordingly. Um, and then those other choices just provide you more options. Well, and I think that this ties into something that we started with, Steve, that you mentioned, which is, you know, there's not a huge gap between where he sits in Resers and where he sits in Ten Thunders. And I think that's because he's so strong staying in Keyword. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, with, you know, with the exception of, of one or two of the choices that we've already mentioned and discussed a little bit, you know, or something like a second master for some really niche situations. Uh, his keyword covers a whole lot of the things that you need him to do for the strategies and schemes that I'm most apt to play him in. No, I completely agree. Um, so, Steve, I, w- I want to take a quick break. And when we get back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where does Yan Lo become front of mind based off of the pool and the matchup. Um, so we'll talk about, you know, what strategies um, you like um, for Yan Lo and uh, maybe some uh, a, few, a handful of schemes that you think are great. So we'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. So now that we have kind of an idea of your core crew, Steve, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, you both, you've declared your master, your opponents declared their master, and, you know, you flip for strategies and schemes. Is there, of the four, is there one strategy that is just screams Yanlo? That's one of the things that's kind of changed for me. Initially, there was. Uh, initially, Yanlo was probably my go-to pick or one of my go-to picks for, for reckoning because we've already talked about the resilience of the crew um, how hard those core key models of his are to take down the type of survivability they have um, how the other pieces augment that and ramp it up even more as well as their own ability to lay out damage so initially reckoning was where I would reach for Leanne Lowe um, because of those things, because of those tools he, that, that he reaches for. You know, I'd probably end up playing something that looked like Yan, Soul Porter, um, Azamu Manos, like we already talked about, Chiaki. Um, and then I'm going to flush out that other, that other piece, like we talked about earlier, um, either with a second master or some of those other pieces, because you end up with something that's really resilient that can get the kills you need to score reckoning. Um, and that is surgical enough that you can do your target prioritization and analysis to let you kill the right models each turn to allow you to continue to score on those progressively harder, you know, second, third, and fourth points of the strategy. So you say, you know, he's good in reckoning, but you said that now that things have changed a little bit, is there another strategy that you now think he dominates? 
really, you know, I, I think, you know, the more I play and, and, and the more I see um, how versatile some of the tools he brings are, how flexible the crew is, and some of the kind of hidden maneuver, you know, and maneuverability the crew brings that people don't see, you know, I think Yen is a pretty safe play for almost everything. I've played him into Corrupted Idols and done really well with him because of the resiliency of the crew. You can afford to push the idle. Um, you've got the maneuverability um, in the crew with things like the Soul Porter that allow your ancestor models to move with things like Chiaki um, and her ability to push models around with beckoning call to get additional movement out of your crew. You can get the models in the right position to push the idols to control a large section of the board and then to heal up the wounds so that you're not compromising the survivability of your crew as you're pushing the idols. They're also really effective at Turf War. Uh, Turf War is a game when I first looked mm. at the crew. Um, I, I was a little, uh, I'll tell you, I, I love Molly for Turf War. I love Molly for maneuver-based schemes um, and strategies. I love Molly for plant explosives. And Initially, she was kind of my go-to for Turf War as well. And we talked about that some when we talked about Molly. But the more I played Yen Lo, the more I saw how effectively he can dominate a game of Turf War as well. Because really, you don't have to have the entire board. You know, it's almost like using the principle of interior lines, you know, to go back to your Napoleonic days, right? <laughs> and, and that's the kind of game that you can play with yeah. Yen Lo's crew inside of those turf markers so that instead of looking at that 36 inch wide board you're really looking at the space between the turf markers right um, how you're controlling the quadrants how you're vacating the quadrants and then selectively getting the kills that you need in order to flip those key markers to deny markers for your opponent etc and the maneuver that he does have with things like the soul porter that can give your ancestors the movement or beckoning call or the pushes that um, Chiaki gets with her bonus action or Yan's own push when he's just not blasting away with darkest magic, give you all the maneuverability you need to control that space inside of those markers. And you're not as susceptible um, as other crews are to uh, causing your own marker to flip because somebody died because of that resiliency. Yeah, because there's there's really no easy marker model that they can just look at and say, hey, I'm going to snipe out that X, you know, be it a Kruligan, be it, you know, a rail worker, be it, you know, whatever low four or five point model um, that doesn't have a whole lot of wounds. There's there's no easy model from the snipe out. Yep. OK, you've got to go kudo. Go kudo is fairly low. Well, not really low. Gokudo's average defense, you know, fairly low wounds, but hey, he's got hard to kill, and I've got a ton of healing in the crew. So there is no easy just, you know, hey, that's the key model that lets me trigger this this marker in the back. Well, and the Gokudo has the ability to get to where it needs to get, so it's not going to stand out there waving in the wind for very long. Yeah, absolutely. Just even more maneuverability that the crew brings um, that's not – you know, quite as apparent when you first look at them. I mean, people see, you know, stat four, stat five movement, and they're like, wow, you know, okay, this crew is is not very fast. You know, I need X models to do this. But, you know, when you define the type of maneuver you need inside of that box, 
you know, in order to engage these quadrants to control the markers, then they bring all that they need to for those. So, you know, I think, I think Yan's a safe pick into, into just about any of those. Um, I'm still less apt to play him in plant explosives because Molly just does yeah. that so well. Um, you've got a few models in Yen's crew that that can make something like that happen, like Manos. Maybe you bring in Yen at that point, um, who's not one of my picks normally for Yen's crew, but that's a, a strategy where you may bring him in. Mm-hmm. But Molly's crew just does that so well that I, I would say Yen's still my go-to for Reckoning, um, but he's also a solid choice for Corrupted Idols or Turf War. I think what it comes down to at that point um, is unlike what I do, which is, you know, kind of play everything uh, based on whatever mood strikes me at a given time, you know, as a person really has to commit to a few masters, you know, play those religiously, you know, get those sets and reps in with them. Um, and then you're better off taking a master that you're more comfortable with. No that question. You've got a lot more experience in, into a number of strategies, even if they may not be the best pick for that strategy, you know, if they're the best pick and how you can play them, you know, so that you know what's available to them and can capitalize off the opportunities that are presented um, for your crew, then that's the right pick for the job. And Yen can be that master in a number of strategies. Yeah, I mean, if if the strategy is plant explosives and you know Molly's better uh, in plant explosives, but you've only gotten two games in with Molly and you've had 15 games in with Yen, well, if it's Tuesday night, yeah, Get, let's get your reps in with Molly. But if it's round two in the tournament, just bring Yan low. No, absolutely. I agree. You know, and, you know, initially I would have said I like Yan primarily in strategies that don't require a high degree of mobility uh, or shifting focus. But, you know, with the pushes, the moves, the tricks you can bring, he can play the movement game. Yep. You know, I prefer to use those to set the tempo, to outmaneuver the opponent, to pick the engagement areas. Um, or the exchanges rather than to use it to spread him across the whole board. Um, once you start spreading too much, you start losing some of the synergy between his models. You know, you get out of range for Chiaki mm-hmm. to, to push models around. You get out of range for her to use Beckoning Call. You get out of range for Sun to Hill, you know, for him to use Bedside Manor for some of those, you know, other synergies like the ability to catch reliquaries. Um, but, you know, the more you know the crew, the better your planning, target priorities, setup, et cetera, becomes. And it's the easier it is for you to adapt um, how you play um, and that strategy you go in the game with to the changing circumstances of the game. You know, frequently when players switch crews every game, um, they don't develop that degree of depth or mastery that lets them get the most out of their crew and use it as effectively as they might, going back to what you said a minute ago, um, with a master that they're more familiar with. We've got several new players uh, that we've picked up during the beta here down in North Carolina, um, and I'm giving them the same advice um, that I'll give everybody else, which is uh, pick pick a crew. And when I say crew, I mean keyword. Pick a keyword and, and, and just play it. And and even to the point, especially early on, don't change a single model. Just play the same crew, regardless of pool, regardless of who you're playing. Play it to the point where you don't have to pick up a card to decide who you're activating next. And for some reason, that's become my kind of litmus test, is when you know who's going to be your next activation, you don't have to look at a single card to know who that is. Then I think you've started to get a handle on your crew. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And that, and that's a good, a good way of laying that out. I was having a discussion with a guy the other day um, that was asking me some just general questions about play in that same kind of context that you're talking about. Um, like the advice you would give a, a new player for how do I look at the game? Um, how do I look at decision-making? What do I do? And, you know, the first piece, like you said, there is the familiarity. Mm-hmm. It's understanding first and foremost the role of each model. You know, why is this model in your crew? Um, what is it designed to do? How do you intend to utilize it? You know, look at the pool, look at the train, look at the opponent's crew. You know, map out um, how these models of yours, once you've designed their role, based on those other factors, how are you going to use them to accomplish that purpose? Yep. You know, if this model is in there to scheme, you know, if this is a scheme runner, if this is a beater, if this is a utility piece, then based on this pool and this board and this opponent, what do I need to do to allow that model to accomplish its purpose? You know, how can my opponent prevent them uh, from doing the job that I intend? And then how can I circumvent that effort? You know, and then after each game, going back and taking a look, did I use this piece yep. as I intended? You know, if not, why not? Was there something I could have done differently? Um, did I select this model for the right purpose and the right mission? You know, if not, if I'm, you know, not utilizing the model properly, then maybe I do need to look at either how do I play this model differently or is it the right choice for the list? You know, did I fail to score because I didn't commit the actions necessary mm-hmm. to accomplish it? You know, or was it because my opponent prevented me from doing so? You know, and if so, then how and why and what could I have done differently? It's why post-game discussions are so important, Steve, especially with the person you lost to, um, which I have a lot of experience uh, losing. Um, and I've learned so much from generous winners that, you know, that walk me through what they thought were the key points, those key decision points and times where they saw, you know, well, yeah, I saw you activated this guy and I couldn't figure out why. And, you know, soak it in. And, and learn from it. Um, because unlike other miniature games out there, there's no hard and fast rules. Everything's contextual and malaphone. It's why it's the best and deepest game out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And that's what I would tell, um, anyone, un- unless you are the best player out there. Um, and I don't know who that is. You know, I, I hear people speculate, um, <laughs> you know, across the pond or whatever, but, you know, what I would tell anybody in any meta is find the best player in your area yep. that'll play open kimono. You know, now if they're a, you know, a knowledge is power type person, then, you know, don't waste your time. Yep. I mean, there's still something you learn by losing, but you're going to learn a lot more with somebody that'll just play open kimono with you. You know what I mean? Um, find someone that, you know, especially for a new player. That, you know, after each turn or after each activation, that'll discuss the why, you know, uh, why did I do this? Why did I deploy like this? You know, based on this set of schemes, strategy, you know, my crew, the terrain, et cetera. Why did I set up like this? 
you know, what was my intent? How did I think this was going to let me shape the game in the next few turns? You know, why did I activate this order or why did they? You know, somebody that will have those discussions with you about what they did, you know, what you did, what options were available, what were some of the other alternatives you had available so that you can start building the analysis of looking at all those different domains of play and the linkage between those, you know, and how those should influence your decisions. That's when a person's really going to grow. I I agree. And, and the only whipped cream I'll put on top of that Sunday is that um, if you, if you're a good player, be generous and, and and be, be that guy. But the one thing I'll throw out there to think about, um, and most people don't do this, but it's something to watch for is you still got to let the guy make his mistakes. Um, so don't turn it into you telling them how to play the game during the game. Um, but just keep notes in your head so that you guys can get back to it because the only way someone's going to learn is they, they've got to screw up. Um, and they've got, you've got to let them play their game, but post game, if you can be generous and you can uh, teach them, um, and, and not tell them, teach them, make them think, um, it, it can do a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, now, now I do think, you know, there's a number of games I've played with people, both in Malifo and in other games where, you know, we didn't always do things post game. Now, you know, Obviously, like you said, you don't want to drive the train for them. Right. You don't want to run their army for them. Uh, but, you know, post-turn or post-activation, you know, saying, hey, why did you do X? Mm-hmm. You know, what was your thought process? You know, and then talking them through that can sometimes be beneficial as well. Um, because then you can shape it into a good game that they're still going to enjoy. They're still going to learn something out of, and that can challenge you as well. Whereas, especially against some players, you know, the mistakes may be catastrophic enough in the first couple turns that really then you're just spending the rest of the game playing cleanup. Right. um, And they're not learning anything and you're not learning anything. That, to me, that's the biggest thing about, you know, the types of podcasts that you run and the things that I've heard you share with other people and the types of, of guests that you bring on to talk and then doing these types of games as if we can build the community as a whole, then building my opponents helps build me up. No too. question. Because the better my opponents are, the more they understand all the nuances of play and the different dimensions and the different aspects, then the more of a challenge it's going to be for me so that I can continue to grow and improve my game as well. I hope we, I hope we can see a day, uh, Steve, where Malifo has disposable opponents like, uh, 40K and AOS does. Uh, but we don't. And, you know, it, 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 teaching makes you better. Growing your community and making, making other players better, um, is good. And just real quick before we, uh, talk about schemes, um, don't be afraid to re-rack those games that you're talking about, Steve. And I've had those games happen. I've been on both sides of them. I've been the guy that, uh, you know, took advantage of some dumb mistakes early on a game with this casual or, um, made some dumb mistakes. And if, and if you're at the point where it's the end of turn two and it's pretty obvious and it's just, you know, the two of you on a Tuesday night, re-rack same crew same pool let's play this again um and you're going to end up you're going to end up creating uh a person who's going to fall in love with the game the way you are 
Um, there's so much to fall in love with with Malifaux. You don't want a game with you to be the reason they don't want to play again. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, that's what I did a lot of down in the in the limited Southeast Arizona meta was, you know, in the few opportunities we had a chance to get a bunch of guys together you know, at the local gaming clubs game day or something like that. You know, if we had a game like that, one of the ones I was in where, you know, within the first couple of turns, you know, things were obvious, then we'd do that. We'd do a reset and uh-huh. a restart, kind of talk through some of the lessons learned, you know, where things went south, how things could have been done a little bit differently, you know, and then launch again. Because I'd much rather, you know, get a full game out of it and a good game out of it that's going to challenge me as well um, and allow me to look at, you know, and gain more experience, you know, in a certain pool or with a certain crew or whatever, um, you know, than just pushing toys around in a game where the where the participants aren't happy. Yeah, I agree. So we're running t- a little bit tight on time, Steve. So uh, real quick, can you give us two or three schemes that you think um, uh, Yanlo excels in? Sure. Uh, when looking at the schemes, uh, because normally um, I've got a lower model count the way I run Yan without a whole lot of extra models and actions. I look for things that I can accomplish incidental to the strategy um, or the attack. Um, so I, I do like outflank, you know, in spite of the fact that earlier I kind of talked about maneuver mm-hmm. and the maneuverability he has, but the way I like to use it in a much more limited context. I like outflank. That's always one of my top picks for, I would say, the vast majority of crews I play because all you have to do is show up. Yep. You don't have to dedicate a whole lot of actions into doing something, you know, or jumping through hoops or laying out markers or doing whatever. You know, I show up, I can score out flank. Um, I also like detonate. Um, I also like dig as they require you to be close to the opponent, which is something that you're probably going to do in a Yan Low crew. Um, assassinate and Vendetta are playable as well, and his crews can usually accomplish both of those. Um, pretty well also since it has really survivable lower cost models like Komenu. Um, in a pinch, you can do harness and search as well, though really, uh, you know, out of the two train, depending, I probably prefer search. You know, early on in the, in the closed beta um, and in the open beta, you know, I liked harness, um, but the more I play, the less I like it mm-hmm. because it's one of those schemes that unless you've got the right models, um, for example, things like hucksters or things like um, the union miners with false claim that can just blast out multiple markers yeah. for you in an action. Um, it just takes a lot of actions to accomplish those schemes. So really, I'm looking for the things, like I said, like outflank, um, you know, assassinate, vendetta, you know, detonate, dig, things that I can do just as part of how I'm going to run this crew anyway without a whole lot of effort. About the only things I don't like with him uh, are probably things like breakthrough, hold up their forces, take prisoner, power ritual. All of that makes sense. Yep. Yep. It, um, you know, it's good. And, it, it, you, know, t- you know, some of this, it's not a coincidence, Steve, that you're, you're finding schemes that you're, you're using regardless of crew. And it's not that, that those schemes um, can be done by any crew. I think it speaks to your play style, which is you're picking crews that fit your play style. And as a result, there's certain schemes that fit your play style. Um, and one of those aspects of your play style is, is not only 
maneuverability, but efficiency. Um, so I think that that, uh, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, there, there are some oddballs in there with this one. Um, the, the oddballs here really are, are power ritual and breakthrough. Yep. Um, typically, those are top picks for me in a number of crews where the deployment supports it. There are deployments where I will not take power ritual. Um, I mean, there are no hard and fast rules, obviously, but in, in Wedger standard, I just don't like power ritual. Well, there, it's, it's a completely different scheme. It's a completely different scheme versus, uh, you know, versus flank. Absolutely. And so typically both of those power ritual and breakthrough, if we're playing flank deployment or maybe even corner deployment yep. are almost top picks for me in something like Molly or something like Marcus, where you've just got so much speed maneuverability. Um, but in Yen's, in Yen's, I don't like them mm-hmm. because I have to, in his crew, I have to dedicate a lot more effort into accomplishing those than something like the ones we already mentioned. Probably another oddball for me is claim jump. Um, claim jump is something I usually just don't like unless I have a way to push or guarantee I can clear enemy models out of the area where you need to score it. Um, this was the one place I would almost give the thunder side of the house a little bit of a prompt here. Um, is when you play something like Yanlo and Thunders, you know, you can bring in Fuhatsu, right. kind of like Kojo. He's got a push so he can force clear that area for you um, to make sure that you can score that effectively. Otherwise, like you said, the things I don't like are things I don't like with any crew. Things like deliver a message, hold up their forces, take prisoner, um, because they force you to make decisions that may not be the most optimal or efficient decisions for you based on everything else you want to do in the game. And you have a, you have a little bit too much reliance on what your opponent is going to do or not do. Um, Absolutely. Which, 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 which hinders your agency. Um, so that, that, um, that can, that can be challenging. All right, Steve, we're going to take one more break. And when we get back from this break, what I want to talk about is some things that might be a little less obvious for new Yan low players. And then we also need to give a little bit of gravy to uh, the people that are going to be playing against Yan low. So we'll talk about some of Yan low's weakness. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Encounters, so we'll be right back. So, wow, at this point, if you're not excited about Yan Lo, um, I don't know how that can be true uh, because um, I know that I am um, listening through really just, you know, everything that he brings and whether you're, a, you know, a casual player that just wants a fluffy list, I think Yan Lo brings that. And uh, it's becoming pretty evident that he is a very competitive uh, keyword. Um, the one thing I do want to talk about, Steve, before we get into kind of weaknesses and counters, I want to talk a little bit about um, what I what I'm calling kind of second level play. So the first time you read a card, 
um, or you read a, a keywords card or a cruise card, you know, you, you kind of get an idea of what they do. And then, you know, the first three, four or five games, you kind of fumble through and, you know, you're starting to figure them out and whatnot. But what I'm finding is once you get to like 15 games with, with a crew, you, you, you start to notice something that you really did not see coming or something that was not obvious from the beginning. So for you, was there any kind of second level utility or power in Yanlo that wasn't obvious when you first started with them? Yeah, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier when we we're talking about the strategies. And for me, it was the amount of maneuverability that may not be as obvious to you um, at first glance. When I first picked up Yanlo, especially making the transition from 2E through the closed and open beta um, into the differences in how he played in 3E. You know, I was reaching for him, like I said, for reckoning because I was almost looking at this not as a pure bubble crew, but in that style where I want everything fairly close together. I want the pieces to support each other. You know, I'm still thinking about Azamu holding ground, about Manos doing things around the periphery, and then Yan kind of operating in the space in between them. And once I got the crew on the table, that was what I ended up with. But then the more I started playing and when I started reaching for Yan and playing him in other strats as well, just to let me see how he does in this one. This is kind of mm-hmm. neat. You know, hey, this is a matchup I like. You know, let me try this out. Then I really started understanding uh, how much hidden maneuverability the crew had you know we talked about chiaki earlier beckoning call uh, one of her her attack actions such an amazing action it's another long range ability much like yen's attack that's 12 inch range and what it does is it lets her move a target its movement towards a friendly model and its line of sight mm-hmm. you know if she's doing this on one of her own models um, it's stat six, target number 12, so it does require at least a six to go off. But if you're doing this against one of your own models where you can relent, you know, six isn't that hard to come by, yep. especially an unsuited six, you know. And when the only constraint is 12 inches from her and that it's moving a model towards a friendly model in line of sight, well, I can have Manos in a complete, completely different quarter of the board, and this is allowing Yan to move that direction or Azamu to move that direction. Or I can have a Gokudo scheming over here in the, you know, in the right quadrant. And this has given me that additional push um, or movement, not push, um, to get a model in position so that, you know, much like uh, Sonya and Second Ed, instead of having to use his own AP to walk, you know, Yan's just dumping out three darkest magics a turn. You know, or it's allowing Azamu to move out behind that obstacle yep. so that he can charge flurry and do good work to put down that big target. And that's not the only thing that you're bringing the maneuverability from. The soul porter, like you mentioned earlier, you know, gives you additional movement. Chiaki with beckoning call gives you additional movement. You know, Azamu's got an attack action, you know, of his own. Actually, it's a tactical action. I'm sorry. Um, heroic intervention mm-hmm. that gives you a push, lets you move other things away, uh, gives him a further movement than his own movement is naturally. You know, lets him go six instead of four, um, and then he still gets an attack. So you're getting the efficiency at the same time you're getting the additional maneuverability, and then once you start adding in, you know, things like Manos 
you know, yin in the right circumstance, and then the out-of-key models you can bring in, out-of-keyword models you can bring in as well, you can just get way more maneuverability than I would have thought out of the screw, which is what's let me use it to such great effect in some of the schemes like or strategies like turf war and corrupted idols um, that require a much greater degree of maneuverability to be successful than reckoning does. Boy, Steve, I'll tell you, you what, what you're really speaking to is is something that um, is, I think is unique about Malifaux, which is, and we've hinted at it and we've talked about it a little bit, is, is just how contextual everything is. Um, and I've, I've said this several times on this podcast. I'm going to say it again because um, I believe it's the truth is you have to get these models on the table. You have to play them. If you listen to a podcast and, and Steve or, you know, Jamie Varney or um, Doxy says that this model's crap, get it on the table and play it. Prove to yourself that it's garbage. Or if, you know, if someone on, on the podcast tells you that this model is a great model, don't believe them. Put it on the table and play it because it, you just, you have to get the games in and it's um, nothing is point and click in this game. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. So much of it is based on the approach a person takes, exactly. the style of play, you know, how they read the situation, the the terrain, the opponent's crew, the strats, et cetera. I mean, a great example that's, you know, you go back to the Molly discussion. Um, you know, me, you, and Jamie, though I've never met him in person, you know, all have slightly different styles of play. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's a huge fan of Night Terrors um, because the way, you know, in the pools that he plays Molly, my understanding, you know, based on, you know, either Facebook discussion or podcast, et cetera, you know, or some of the chat back and forth after that episode. Um, you know, the way he runs the crew, the types of pools he likes to play Molly in, those work extremely well for the way he likes to play. Um, the the Based on the composition of my crew, the way I utilize them, um, the way I like to operate, um, then they're not as effective for me. You both can be right in this scenario, and context is so important. It's not that one's a bad model. It's just for a given um, play style, for a given approach, for a given crew, this one may be a better choice in this circumstance. That one may be in another. I don't think there's near as many models in third ed from what we've seen so far that suffer um, from some of the issues you had in second as the game progressed and models yeah. just got left behind. Yeah, th- there were, there was dead models in two. Um, and, and that was, that was more the creep. Um, and, uh, things getting so complicated, um, that I think that caused that to happen. But I agree the keyword system, um, breathed a lot of life into a lot of models. Um, and I think that's one of the hidden benefits of the keyword system is, um, you're not always looking for the most efficient schemer in the faction you're first kind of looking for the most efficient schemer in keyword you know and then you're looking versatile and then you might look out of out of keyword and i think that helped a lot um so real quick steve let's let's talk about what yanlo is afraid of um and what a yanlo player needs to watch out for or if someone is um going to be playing yanlo t- uh tomorrow what uh what they should consider bringing awesome all right so um you know, probably the most obvious piece, and we touched on this a little bit, uh, weakness that the crew has is Yen's susceptibility to early assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, you know, I think the uh, the hype is more than the reality. Um, 
you know, the alpha strikes just don't seem as strong in this version um, so far. You know, but, you know, an alpha strike crew that can go deep and that can hit hard with multiple models or have a lot of models that can shoot deep and blast, you know, are things that Yan fears early. You know, obviously, this is one of the things that, that you have the greatest ability to counterplay, um, utilizing the terrain, your other models. Um, there are, are a ton of things you can do to, to limit your opponent's ability to get after Yan while they're seeking to limit your options to protect Yan operative you know, early. Um, given the opportunity, if the Yanlo player doesn't protect him first turn, then cutting the head off the snake's a great approach. Mm-hmm. Um, that eliminates him, shuts down a lot of support for their crew, and then neutralizes one of the greatest threats that they have. But uh, you got to be careful, I think, uh, as the opponent, because two, you know, um, I think that I'd be looking at Sun really hard if I thought I was facing a, an Alpha Strike crew. Um, yeah. Yeah, you've you've got you know a variety of choices. Yeah. I mean, bedside manner with sun. You've got things like the Komenu. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Komenu are a great defensive tech piece for him as well um, because they can get in there, they can take the hit for him. Yep. You know, you just drop them near him in deployment if you're worried that somebody has a trick that's going to let something really nasty get in there early. You know, or even just pound in a lot of damage from range. Um, you know, then take the hits there, and you know, Komeno is a good, cheap, expendable, yep. you know, tough piece with armor and hard to kill. Um, like I said, you know, I think the Alpha Strike one is the most obvious one, but it's also the weakness that you have the best ability to mitigate the risk there without even making a whole lot of changes or tweaks to your crew, but just thinking through the capabilities they have, how they can use them, and then how you can use your pieces, the terrain, et cetera, you know, to prevent them from being able to execute that plan. Yeah, and the, the, the last thing before we move on from this that I'll bring up too is that watch out because the Yanlo crew hits back hard. Um, so if you're, if you're going to go in uh, elbow deep and try to, um, you know, just run, do that assassination run. You better finish the job because probably who came in is not going to be around for much longer. Yeah, absolutely. And depending on what the Yanlo players got in their crew, um, the the scope of what they can send back at you yep. can be just widely varying and devastating. One of my one of my regular opponents um, is a big fan of the you know I'm going to go after Yan early. Um, sometimes to the tune of multiple from the shadows samurai um, <laughs> trying to set, you know, not too far away and, and blasting in with plus flips and focus sure. to try to gun for Yan early. You know, I've looked down the barrel of Fuhatsu and double from the shadows samurai once or twice, you know, and it didn't take me too many games of that until McMorning started showing exactly. up in uh, <laughs> Yan Low Cruz as well. And he's good for about a samurai turn since he's not worried about armor. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. Um, anything else um, that uh, people should think about? Yeah, there's, there's probably two other things um, that can provide varying degrees of concern. Um, After Alpha Strikes, heavily armored crews are probably the second thing that Mm -hmm. gives the crew problems. Um, The majority of the crew doesn't have any way of getting around around armor, um, and the few options they have just aren't that reliable. 
I mean, in the crew, in the keyword, about the only thing you have that ignores armor um, is a trigger on Azamu's attack. Right. But being an enforcer, he can't stone for it. The trigger's not built in. Um, so in keyword, you don't have a whole lot of abilities to just completely ignore armor. You know, now obviously with focus, you know, um, hitting for moderate and severe damage with Azamu, with Manos, you know, Manos is triggered to let you do additional damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for him to heal, you can get damage in past armor, but not to the degree that you can if you could ignore armor. Right. Um, and so that's one of the probably weakness number two, I would say the crew has, especially the more armor they have. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece of that is if your opponent has tools to let them get around armor. So, you know, at that point, something like a samurai is a good example. Um, they're showing up with armor of their own, which is hard for you to get around. And it's also given them the tools to to neutralize or mitigate one of the big defenses you have on something like a Zamu, which is the armor of your own. So that's probably the second weakness the crew has. Um, and that's another case where you're reaching, you know, how to keyword. Um, either into other models for either, you know, big damage spikes um, or ways to ignore or get around armor um, to uh, accommodate that or to get around that weakness. I got to say, Steve, this is this is exciting time. So um, w- Steve and I are recording this the day that um, uh, we are dropped uh, all of the rules and the cards uh, online and then release is coming this Friday. Um, and, you know, Everything you just got done talking about, Steve, made me think about, like, think about how exciting these next 12 months are going to be. Um, how, once we really get a ton of people playing again and the counter plays and the, the strategies and tactics that are going to, you know, appear and the models that people are going to think are broken, but then, pe- then other players will figure out how to, you know, counter them. And, you know, none of that's into the betas were such a small group. None of that's really started to shake out yet. Um, and, you know, you tell you, you talking about how to, you know, what, what Yanlo is afraid of and then how you can counter it. Um, these are exciting times, man. Yeah. One of the things that excited me the most about changes they made to the core game is the way hiring's done so that you're revealing, you're declaring faction, you're revealing master and you're hiring crews because, and I know I've heard you talk about this before with other guests, you know, and then in other episodes where you and Ray were talking just about the additional depth that that piece adds as you're trying to do the analysis and do the counter picks and anticipate what your opponent's going to bring as you're getting each of these pieces of information just makes for an even more exciting game. And that really ties into the third vulnerability that Yanlo and his crew have as well. And that is, since you are announcing Masters up front, you declare faction and then Master, the third vulnerability he has is things that can shut down demise abilities. Mm, because right. as soon as you say Yan Lo, they're going to know that you're going to have ancestors. They're going to expect to see those core models out there. They're going to know the what the demise abilities bring, how powerful the reliquary upgrades can, can be um, when you get those out there. And so they're going to reach for those tools those things that can shut down demise abilities. This one isn't as much of a risk for Yan Lo 
as it is for someone like McCabe. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have Chiaki in the list and Chiaki hasn't already started pushing those reliquary upgrades out, then the loss of a key model um, with their demise ability shut down shuts down the ability for you to get the recursion going, yep. for you to bring back key models, um, and then for you to hand out those additional benefits to ramp up those other models as well. Yeah, It, it may not cripple him, Steve, but it's going to handicap him, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the other piece of that is, you know, even if you can't shut down the demise abilities, you know, it's about, you know, what are those fodder models that they're willing to sacrifice in order to bring the better models back. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very rare you're going to find somebody is, is ditching Manos to bring back a Zamu. Yep. Or very rare that somebody's sacrificing a Zamu to bring back Manos. There are times where I might do it. You know, if I know that on the following turn I need Manos because, you know, move, leap, you know, or scheme, leap, scheme is what it takes for me to win the game, then, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice a Zamu to do it. Uh, but typically, you know, people are going to have things like the Gokudo in there, right. you know, as, as quick free models, you know, where they can bring the good guys back without really sacrificing anything, you know, and the, the easy opportunities to pick those off in conjunction with things that shut down demise abilities or even without them, you know, is a good way to kind of cut into some of the resiliency of the crew. Yeah. And um, Yanlo summoning is not cheap. Because it's a replace, and um, it takes one of uh, Yenlo's actions, um, so it's not going to be done fervently. Um, and to your point, being able to make that decision even harder, which is not I'm going to re replace this Gokudo with a Zamu, um, making that decision harder because now I have to decide between Manos and Azamu. Um, I think is very smart. Yeah, and, and actually I misspoke there because um, you can't actually do, you know, Manos for Zamu. It has to be a non-ancestor. But, oh, right. the, you know, what I should have said was Archie. Yes. You know, yep. yeah, I'm not going to give up, you know, Archie for Manos yep. uh, very willingly, you yep. know, especially with the tricks he's got. And and that's really a bad example because they both have Leap anyway. But, you <laughs> I know, think we what, get the point whatever your non-ancestor <laughs> model yeah. is. It's a lot easier to replace a five or a six stone model uh, with a Zamu than it is to replace, you know, a 10 or an eight, an eight, eight, nine or 10. Yeah, your, your dead yeah. rider, your whatever. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, well, boy, that was uh, that was a lot of really good information, Steve. Um, this is not your last episode with us. Um, so I appreciate you make, uh, making it out here. And um, all the listeners can look forward to uh, the next time that you and I talk. Um, we've got to get you down here to North Carolina, my friend. Um, we've got to get you uh, uh, playing games down here. Oh, yeah, I look forward to it. Once we get the uh, the move done for work and get everything set up, we, we had initially thought we were going to be out there starting to get settled this week, but we got thrown the curveball that our, our house wasn't going to be delivered to about two and a half weeks longer than we thought. God. Um, so, you know, that kind of made us start adjusting the timeline and figuring out the things in between. Um, but once we get there and get settled, you know, the timeline should still permit us to be settled in by, uh, you know, a, a good time to give us a little bit of play time to okay. prep for Nova. And then after Nova, you know, it's all open and anything's game. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to be at Nova. Uh, Steve, I think you're planning on being there at Nova. So uh, for those of you listening that have not bought your tickets or are on the fence, um, I think that uh, Nova is going to really be kind of a blockbuster um, event for M3E. And it's going to be the first um, uh, USFO tour uh, sanctioned tournament. So, um, uh, make sure that if you not have not already signed up for Nova, that you can go ahead and do that. So, uh, Steve, you and I will talk soon. And again, I appreciate you being uh, so generous with our listeners. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. I love doing it. Just anytime you want me, just hit me up and you know, I'll be there. All right. Take care, brother. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T-H-I-R-D. We'll catch you next time on The Third Floor.